Hello and welcome to Impact Adventures. I'm your host, Steve Lamb, Director of Multimedia here at Investment News. Trigger warning, we'll be looking at gender-based violence today. We will not discuss any specific acts or examples of violence, but if this topic may prove sensitive to you, you might want to steer clear and rejoin us next week. Also next week, we will be hosting our annual ESG Summit and Film Festival on December 1st. It is a virtual event for about half the day and totally free to attend. We're going to look at regulation and disclosures for ESG products and advisors, how to make ESG stick at your firm if you're new to it, and investing in climate change, social justice, and equal opportunity, CE credits pending. Afterwards, we will present our third annual ESG Film Festival, where we show documentary films from around the globe that tell powerful and inspiring stories of sustainability, inclusion, and investing. You are welcome to join for one or both sessions. You won't want to miss it. As we move through the Thanksgiving weekend, and many of us in the U.S. take some time off of work to spend with families, eat a lot, and generally unwind, it's critical that we acknowledge that for many women around the world, the reality is that one of their family members may be committing violent acts or harassment upon them. It not only happens at home, but of course in the workplace as well. Gender-based violence is a heavy topic and something that, as you'll hear, many people don't want to talk about. But it is something that I want to shed more light on and try to bring this issue to the foreground so that investors, advisors, and asset managers can start to incorporate this issue into their everyday due diligence and decision-making process. Because believe it or not, and I think we'll show you today, the finance community can and should do something about it. This is not a new problem. But as one of my guests today will say, in the investment world, it is a new topic. So let's get the discussion started. We cannot wait another minute. My two guests today are Teresa Wells, Managing Director and Co-Lead of Seattle Operations at Tiedemann Advisors, and Joy Anderson, President and Founder of the Criterion Institute. Together, they've co-authored an interesting paper titled Investing to Address Gender-Based Violence, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. If today's episode inspires you or interests you, I'd highly recommend that you read it. Now let's get on to the conversation. Hello, Teresa. Hello, Joy. Very nice to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Jinx. Um, absolutely. So great to have you guys both on. Um, this is uh, it's a very important topic. I think it doesn't see enough light in our industry. So hopefully today's episode, we can raise the profile a little bit of what you guys are doing uh, why it's important and how people can go about making a change using their investments. So first off, Teresa, what is gender-based violence and how widespread is it as a global issue? I would like to pass this over to Joy because the Criterion Institute is one of the leading thought leaders um, of this of this movement and in this space. So Joy. So the, 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 the statistic that catches my attention most clearly, and, and I think it's just the grounding, is that one in three women experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And that's a huge number. I was on a call earlier today and um, with somebody who actually works in a church, like she works in a church, like a, uh, she, she works in a church. Um, and she said that 43% of women who were pastors say that they were 
harassed or abused in their congregation. The numbers of, you know, you just, you just think about it, right? There's a, like, for me, somehow that, that statistic just captured my attention of like, this is the leader in a congregation who are being assaulted, right? Put that in a work environment, I think, Many of us can talk to the extent to which sexual harassment and and and, and assault is is part of our day to day work. And, and so I, I think one of the things that's complex about looking at gender and violence, like looking at race and violence, is this is not sort of separate from ingrained attitudes that say this is just how it is, um, that are that are built into the norms of society. That, that honestly, and I think what's what's more shocking about gender-based violence is not that it happens, but that so many think it's okay. That that I think is what just disturbs us at a different level. And just to give a little context of this, this sort of illegality of gender-based violence is relatively recent. You know, in the last 20 or 30 years, and so we really still are at a place with a lot of what's happening in the movement to prevent gender-based violence, which is defining and naming the problem and then starting to work on solutions. But really it's been a rationalization. A lot of the statistics that are out there on gender-based violence are essentially coming from a place that says, this is a problem, it exists. Women are not making this up. Right? This is not just a, a kind of you, you fill in the blank with all the ways that this gets dismissed. It's a real problem. And then leading into investment, it has real costs. Right? So the sort of annual cost of lost productivity in the US alone is nearly a billion dollars annually. This is not, this is just fundamental to that um, that there is a lack of safety in our world and that um, that, that is concentrated um, in a set of populations, um, it's just something we have to address. And it affects, um, I think the work that Criterion has been doing over the last four years is really just about continuing to explore and deepen how many different ways this touches what we think of as just our economic lives. You know, I, I think something that's worth pointing it out, and, and you mentioned it there about naming the problem and then figuring out how to solve the problem. The fact that we're referring to it here today as gender-based violence, because that's what it is. And so often when you hear about stories in the media of, of and as a sports fan, you know, I certainly hear it a lot. Oh, so-and-so football player had a domestic incident mm -hmm. and is under investigation. And that, it, you know, it drives me crazy because it feels like, well, let's let's call it what it is. So can you talk about the importance of how we refer to these acts? I will just think it's hard to talk about. And this is not this is not a light topic. Um, and it in a lot of our, our work, we really work to acknowledge that in these conversations, you know, people who are listening to this podcast are, are survivors of gender based violence. Statistically, that one in three number, it's a lot of people. This is not a, a few people who have experienced this in isolation. It's a sort of significant issue. So we chose the term gender-based violence. It's a 
it's sometimes gender-based violence and harassment. Um, whatever the term to use, sometimes it's talked about as violence against women. There's lots of different umbrella terms. I do think the word violence is important. Um, we once had a state treasurer, treasurer of a, of, a, of a US state say, couldn't you just call it harassment? I think we'd be more comfortable. No, it would be less off-putting if you could just name it something less controversial. Like, well, no, <laughs> right? So at some point, it, it, that's. But I do want to just name. I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not naive in saying that's that's hard, right? There are lots of ways that we could make this a safer, more palatable topic. But the reality is that in this last time since we've started this podcast many, many, many women experienced. Yeah. Can I add something? Because you, you mentioned something about the State Department. And I do think um, we talk about this in the paper and we name it in the paper. I think it's a really important statement that actually US State Department talks about it as any harmful threat or act. And they even state that it's rooted in structural gender inequalities, patriarchy, and power imbalances. That comes directly from the State Department. So yes, in all cases, there's going to be those individuals who on a one-on-one -on -one basis might reflect other biases, but even our State Department sees this as a critical issue. And you know, one other thing that, since we're talking about the name of gender-based violence that I think I wanna take a moment to name as well is the, the concept of gender. And so there's a lot around this paper that's really focused on the, you know, uh, there's a lot of data and a lot of conversation around um, what would otherwise be considered binary gender. And that's largely because of the fact that so much of the research so far has really been predicated around a binary relationship with gender, but with the way that we think about it and see it and what we want to call it, you know, like what we want to create as change is really the inclusivity of gender. And that, you know, we very much so welcome our non-binary and our trans friends and all of those that are experiencing violence based on their gender solely into this umbrella of care. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that's super important to, to remind ourselves of. Let's pivot a little bit towards the, what can we do about it as investors? Teresa, can you walk us through the four ways that your firm is taking action on this? Yeah, so um, after you know many, many months of, of conversation and research between our two groups with um, Tiedemann Advisors and Criterion Institute, we had this kind of eureka moment um, where we were talking through the four different approaches that we use for impact investing and how we should we could think about those four different approaches in the context of, of using gender-based violence as our lens to look in each of these different impact criteria. And so to walk you through it a little bit, um, on the one end, you know, uh, I, I would say like on the most progressive end, we have the catalytic investments. These are where we're focusing on like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve and what's the unique form of capital that can come in to solve that in a way that is, you know, more focused on the impact outcomes maybe than the financial return. Doesn't mean it won't earn a financial return. It's just trying to be as creative as possible about what's the economy, what's the world that we want to see and how can finance move that. It's a great place for gender-based violence um, for private investors who have the capacity to do that because we are trying to create something new here. We are trying to like formulate new ideas and invest in new companies and in new solutions. And so, um, so that's that's the fourth approach in catalytic. Moving up is to thematic is where um, you're deploying impact capital 
that um, can support a market rate return as well as high financial, um, sorry, high impact outcomes. And so both of those things can work in, um, in concert with one another in a number of different themes around, you know, clean technology or financial inclusion and so on. Um, and in the context of gender-based violence, what we've focused on there is really there, there isn't a particular thematic strategy that's uniquely positioned and focused solely on gender-based violence and mitigation. But there are many impact investors out there who are um, unknowingly probably creating unintended consequences related to gender-based violence through a well-intended investment into an impact strategy. And so what we try to do there is we name these are the things that you should be looking for. And how can we as a collective audience push the field forward in trying to reestablish terms that look at gender-based violence as a critical factor in that impact outcome? We can talk about that a little bit more in some of the examples, but moving over into the publicly traded markets, there's kind of two main strategies that we're focused on there. So one is around values alignment. And here it's, um, you know, we kind of made the, <laughs> the analogy that it's, more of a cleaver than a scalpel. And so what we're doing is we're basically just investing in a passively managed strategy that's replicating a benchmark or an index. And then we're electing which companies, which sectors, which industries we want removed from our portfolio because they don't align. And in the paper, what we do is we identify these are the industries where gender-based violence is inordinately high. Can you give some examples? Certainly, yeah. Uh, Joy, do you want to jump in? I've been talking for a minute. So I, I would say um, agriculture is the highest site is, a, is of, of all the industries, of all the sectors in the world. Agriculture is the highest prevalence of gender-based violence. And so what I, just building on Teresa's point, um, I think what's useful about this is if you're already an investor who's screening out factory farming, you should also do it because of the exploitation that's happening within those supply chains and the gender-based violence. Another example, again, where there's alignment is private prisons, right? So there is a significant amount. I mean, the, the, um, there's a woman who leads an organization, uh, association for currently and formerly incarcerated women. And I asked her relatively naively about the connection between her experience in prison and gender-based violence. And she said, there's no woman I know in prison who hasn't experienced gender-based violence, right? So again, it's another, um, I think similar to the, the, the thematic lens that Teresa was just talking about. Here are issues you're already looking at. You're already looking at questions of climate and the screens that you're putting there could just be smarter if you also add in a, um, a, a lens on gender-based violence. And so there's also things like pornography, Let's get rid of it. Just get it out of our portfolio. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, and then I would also say there's a number of companies that um, that would trigger removal from a lot of impact portfolios because of other um, human rights violations, things like child labor laws, things like human trafficking, things like um, you know major labor controversies. Uh, all of those kinds of companies, we also recall, you know, like we suggest that you could remove those as well. And again, many impact clients already would. But those that are focused on gender-based violence, there is you know, a significant tie between those issue areas and, uh, and gender-based violence. So we encourage those removals as well. Okay, so sneaking back over to the fourth approach is yeah, uh, what we call ESG integration. 
And so there we're working with active managers, those that are, you know, kind of making their own informed decisions about which stocks get in the portfolio versus not. And, um, and here we're always focusing on those managers that deploy a lot of time and energy and resources to um, really making an informed decision on the environmental, social, and governance aspects of that company in equal measure with their financial characteristics and only leaning into those companies that are some of the best ESG operators. Because we really do find that that leads to a much higher quality portfolio and a higher quality um, investment. And here, what we spent a lot of time doing is interviewing a number of the managers that we know do really great work inside of ESG integration, specifically around what they're doing in gender-based violence. Um, and, and what we found was a number of managers who were focusing on things around gender representation maybe even trying to lean a little bit into gender empowerment, but very few were focusing on violence. Um, but those that were, we, we made sure to highlight in the, in the context of the paper in, in some case studies where, um, you know, some really critical factors are at play. So, um, so Teresa, I want you just to double click on that for a second, because I think this comes back to a point you made earlier, which is that the cause of gender-based violence is, is gender inequality. Right, these are intrinsically linked, um, but not, uh, so, so how do I say this clearly? The cause of gender-based violence is gender inequality. I think within the field of gender lens investing and people who have been working to integrate gender into their ESG approach, that has almost squarely sat within the governance it's actually not often in the S, it's in the G. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. women on boards, what's the representation that the diversity improves decision-making. And so largely gender is thought of as a governance issue more than a social issue. Right. And so within this, I think one of the challenges we have with that is there is no data that says, there's not a clear causal line that says having more women on a board is going to lead to a, a reduction of gender-based violence within that company or in the ability for that company to respond to gender-based violence in the world. And so to Teresa's point of really thinking about how are we doing what's described as a gender analysis of gendered dynamics in the market in which we're investing or in the country in which we're investing in the geography, in the market, in the industry, in the sector, whatever. How are we doing a gender analysis of what's happening within those markets versus counting how many women are in leadership? And, and I think the reason Criterion, just, just building off of this, the reason Criterion four years ago decided to focus on gender-based violence is because we are concerned about the relative thinness in the analysis around gender that was happening, particularly within ESG markets. And there just was, I, I remember talking to a fund manager once who said, I'd love to do gender lens investing. He's a really large ESG manager. I'd love to do gender lens investing. I mean, he's reading his clients, his clients want this. Like, I wish I had a strategy. I just don't buy women on boards. Like, dude, <laughs> what? You don't have to buy women on boards. Like, I don't know. Look at the world, look at gender patterns in the world. Um, so one of the ESG pieces that we've, pieces of research we've been doing that, that I think is, um, you know, again, it's more of a weighting strategy than a company selection strategy, but there is very, very strong data 
that says that violence against women is a leading cause, a leading indicator of political stability. Every ESG investor is looking at some level at long-term predictions around political instability. Here is a leading indicator. And yet the data that most people rely on to analyze political risk doesn't include gender-based violence. Yeah. Full stop. I mean, it, it, it includes, uh, you know, different forms of, uh, includes different forms of violence, but not gender-based violence. And so again, that's a place where how can we improve the data that we're using to do the analysis of the risk by looking at this as issue. And it's just a problem. The data is actually out there in the world, but not baked in. And just to, you know, I, I guess to, one of the things to double down on what she's saying is if you look at the political instability of various different countries, that translates directly into the country risk that you would underwrite into owning any of those countries' companies, right? Or owning their sovereign debt, for instance. And so all of those things should really be considered as key factors when you're doing your analysis. And I think, you know, so just to highlight that. Right. One of the other things that I would say that's really difficult, and to Joy's point, and talking to a manager who's like, I really want to do this strategy. Well, the problem is, is that everybody's looking for that single piece of data or even a few pieces of data that they can um, amass from a company's annual report, right? Um, and they don't exist, they, at least at this point. And so, you know, a lot of what I think Criterion's trying to do and what I think our really astute managers are trying to do is they're taking more of a, um, a holistic lens and, and look into things that are going on inside of that company that might be other indicators that are readily available, but um, that haven't to, to date been specifically tied to or regressed to exactly gender-based violence inside of the corporate culture. And so what we're trying to do is there's, um, you know, there's some astute managers who take a very almost private equity-like investigation approach into companies and into their supply chains and into how they act with the rest of their stakeholders and community to understand if it's a good company on the inside. And then there's also some really good companies that are amassing survey data from market participants and employees that around like what it's like for women inside of the organization. And that, uh, you know, there's some really interesting things to glean from that. But I know that Criterion's working on um, another kind of another deeper level into how you can evaluate publicly traded companies that don't report on things like this. So, and, and I think, Teresa, one other piece that I want to call out, particularly in the ESG category, and then we'll let you get a word in here somewhere, Steve, but um, the, uh, the one other piece I really want to call out is the importance of having a future orientation, which is going to sound really obvious in an investment call. Like at some level, it only matters how these companies are going to perform in the future, not how they're performing last year. And so what is important about tying a future perspective to gender-based violence is illustrated by the Me Too moment. All of a sudden, the world was shocked in the revealing of the level of harassment and assault that was happening in, in the industries that were sort of called out during the Me Too movement. And while it was more of a dip than a long-term decline, there were a bunch of companies who took a pretty hard hit in a short time frame. Okay, how could you predict that? It wasn't a surprise. There were movements that Me Too didn't emerge out of nowhere. It came out of orchestrated social movements that said, we're gonna actually say at some point, gender-based violence is not okay. 
So part of what I think is is a is a new practice that needs to happen within ESG and particularly in the S is we need to be thinking about what are the shifts in norms, practices, regulations that might be coming as a result of social changes. So if in the future, it is not okay to do violence to women, and I would love to say it would be not okay to do violence to all kinds of folks anyone. who experience anyone, right? But like we actually tolerate we have an acceptable level. We sort of have an acceptable tolerance of sure, he beats his wife, but he's a good guy and he's a great football player, not to pick on football players. And so what- Or people just don't want to talk about it, right? Like that's the mm -hmm. big thing too, Joy, right? They just don't want to talk about it. Well, and that goes, then that, that goes back to, oh, it's a domestic incident. Yeah, exactly. It's a domestic incident. And how do we actually get some data out there? Because there are ways to predict at some point the norms are changing and this won't be tolerated and you don't want your money sitting in companies mm -hmm. that thought this would always be okay. For me, that is just a fundamental question. How do you know who's going to lose in the future where this is no longer tolerated? And I just, as a human being, need to believe that there's a moment in the future where this is no longer tolerated. I, you know, from what we've talked about so far, because what I, what I want to ask next is kind of the simple question, but it might might be a very hard answer which is how do you use investing to solve gender-based violence? Because it's a behavior, right? So how do you use capital on a large scale to affect individual behavior? And it, it, it appears to me like what you guys have said so far is there's really kind of two tracks to look at it. You have culture within companies. Do the companies tolerate it within themselves, within their supply chain, et cetera? And companies or entrepreneurs or maybe even NGOs that are actually out there actively working against gender-based violence or to solve that issue. So can yeah. you kind of, can you guys both just talk about how do you actually go about putting your money to use to solve this issue? I mean, yes, we want to avoid the risks in your portfolio of being invested in a company who tolerates gender-based violence and then that comes to light and their stock goes Right. Like you don't want to be there, but that's not really solving the problem. That's just looking out for your portfolio. So here's where here's where your awareness on that can help, right? So um, one of the challenges we have right now in the world is that gender-based violence is tolerated. It's condoned, right? At some point, we were at a very similar place with climate change. You know, might be bad for the polar bears, sucks for them, maybe the trees are declining, but I'll be okay, right? And so what, what happened within the climate finance world was a sort of a increasing awareness and the force of finance. And I look at what's happening right now on the global stage in terms of pressure on governments. Some of that is coming from financial actors who are saying, I don't want my investments sinking into the ocean, thank you very much. And I'm gonna get out ahead of that. And so I do, one of the reasons I love working in finance is because of the ability that finance has to hold up what matters. And sometimes we hold up the wrong things, but we could say, I'm sorry, gender-based violence is material to my investment decision-making. 
if there's a whole bunch of investors saying gender-based violence is material to my decision-making, then governments will act. So for example, right now within the IFC and, and the World Bank and a, and a few other actors, they do safeguarding about gender-based violence. They say, wow, we, we would like this not to happen, but they don't price their investments based on the risk. And I, I do think the difference between it's a social issue that we need to address to we need to price this risk into our investments um, because we fundamentally believe it's material, I do think that matters. And this is where I think it's really interesting because what Joy is bringing up is sort of a, it's the, it's where finance and economics co-join, right? And so in the, in the context of global climate change, we're talking about, you know, all of these massive policy changes, many of which are all predicated, almost all of them are predicated on money, right? They're predicated on economies, economies that have ailing and sick populations that have rising seas and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so that is an economic and financial based decision that is forcing a hand. And what we're talking about here is another one that, and, and what I argue is that like all of these economic costs that we've outlaid, right? Like what Jay st or Joy started this conversation with, they're already priced in, right? These are material economic costs that are already a part of our system. But what we're not doing, we're not pricing in the right tail risk of what would happen if we didn't have them. Right? What would happen to our healthcare system and costs? What would happen to our employment turnover and costs? What would happen to productivity of individuals? That's a huge opportunity that we're just not giving the light of day. And so I think that that needs more consideration. And, you know, so getting back down to the brass tacks, what can we do? Well, there's two things, right? We can, as investors and those that are moving capital, can acknowledge that so to our um, human spirits are moving in this direction where they're making more informed choices about where their dollar goes, how they spend it, where they invest it, who they give it to, right? And all of those things, we need to encourage the asset management field to deploy more resources in research around how they're making investment decisions and to put these critical risk factors like we've identified here, country risk, company risk, employee risk, so on and so forth, right? that needs to be underwritten into these investment decisions with a gender-based violence lens. And there's great data out there. There's great research. And inside the paper, we actually provide a whole host of resources of where you can go to find more. And so we need them to incorporate that into their investment decision-making because it's critical. And then on the other side, we need private capital to go into new solutions to really catalyze new movements, catalyze new ideas, catalyze new research, frankly, um, in, in that regard. And then lastly, like, you know, on the, on the side of other impact investors, acknowledge that this is a problem and change the terms. You have power as impact investors, you have power inside of these funds. I'm sure if you raised the flag to them and said like, hey, you know, I, I, inside of this microfinance fund, I love that you're doing this and I love that you're funding women, but have you really thought critically about like what it means in terms of the violence that's happening for that woman? And is there anything that we can do, right? Just name that. We're at that stage where we can start getting the field in motion, right? And they probably don't have solutions yet, but at least the, if, if more and more and more of us are demanding that they think about it critically, then they're gonna start putting the solutions in place, just like they did within the global climate change context, right? And so- 100%, Teresa, I think the one piece I wanna double click on 
is there are an increasing number of people back to this thematic strategy. There's an increasing number of people who have a women's empowerment thematic. And they're sort of saying, here's a, here's a set of things. I'm gonna screen for women on boards. I'm gonna screen for you know, women-led businesses, managers that are women. As we look across our women, you know, sort of economic empowerment strategies, there needs to be a constant analysis of power and violence. Because you could be investing in a investment fund, VC fund that's prioritizing women-led businesses. There's a ton of research out there about the predatory nature of the VC community and the level of sexual assault and, um, and, and harassment that happens within that. Um, Within microfinance, microfinance is a huge industry that sort of blossomed and with it came violence. And there's pretty, it's not to say we shouldn't move this capital, but eyes wide open, right? The sort of how do we actually do it in smart ways? We, we were recently reviewing a, a deal with a microfinance company, fund of funds that was getting created and the head of the microfinance firm had actually been convicted of sexual assault. What? And people had a debate about whether or not they should do anything about it. And so here's a man leading in his goodness of his heart, going out and helping women in the world, because isn't he great? He also thought it was really appropriate to do something kind of horrific. And so I think part of it is how do we not be Pollyanna about what, there are places where investment capital is moving and it is specifically targeted to improve the lives of women and girls. I wanna make sure at those moments, we're not just asking everybody to make the business case for how women will make our world better, but we're also just really sort of eyes wide open, looking at the power dynamics within the, within the setting and not sweeping them under the table because it's more efficient just to, say we helped women. Teresa, kind of bringing it back to what Tiedemann Advisors is doing, and you know, you laid out the four pillars of what you guys are doing. Can we get into just a few examples of some of that work, um, more specificity on, on what's going on there and how other investors can take advantage? Yeah, so on the one hand, um, so we have opportunities to go into passively managed strategies where we're applying these screens. Right. So what we talked about before was you could go and you could apply the screens where gender-based violence is more prevalent within a particular industry, as well as those operators that have already been um, found out to have labor violations or human rights violations. Right. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, when you do that against a global equity benchmark, the you know, the big question that a lot of people have is, oh, well, I don't want to take on that much risk because I don't own um, XYZ sector in my portfolio relative mm. to the benchmark. Um, and that risk is called tracking error risk. And it basically means like how far you're gonna deviate plus or minus from the benchmark return. And actually what we found is it's very little, uh, you know, so while you're still eliminating quite a number of companies, the overall level of sway on what that means for, um, for the benchmark is against the benchmark is not very much. So that's one strategy that we can employ. Interestingly enough, when you own those stocks in your portfolio, it also gives you agency to activate on those companies because you own the companies outright. 
So there's, um, there's the degree to which you can involve yourself in shareholder activism if you own those companies. So you may choose instead of screening them out, you may choose instead to hold them and then start getting into action on them. And so you can either, you know, make sure you're voting your proxies appropriately, or you could file or co-file um, shareholder resolutions that are really aimed at trying to incorporate better policies, um, better transparency, and so on. Are there any funds or companies that you're aware of that own these equities specifically to be engaged in uh, anti-gender-based violence initiatives? So most of the time, whenever we see shareholder activism, it's going to be around um, incorporation or a greater um, greater degree of diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, um, as well as transparency around what the plan is for DEI as, and also tracking to that plan. And so there's oftentimes more transparency around that. There's very, you know, there's not really oftentimes shareholder activism around specifically don't create violence in your company. However, um, we do highlight a specific case study that um, of a group called Adesina who found one unique tool uh, that is very effective around this issue. And so it's, um, and so it's called uh, Force the Issue. And they've gotten a number of different companies to sign on to this list, stating that they're going to remove any um, forced arbitration clauses from their employment agreements. And so, and what that does, a forced arbitration clause means that anybody that's employed there, if, um, if they are sexually harassed or violated at the organization, then um, they're required to go into arbitration as opposed to taking a, a case forward. So it means that it just gets hush-hushed and moved out and it's covered up with non, you know, non I was going to say NDA, right? This is where NDAs right. come in. Yeah. That's right. And so um, there's, you know, a num hundreds now of companies that have taken the stand and said that because of the movement around this issue and the visibility of it. So I really applaud Adesina and the work that they've done here because they've gotten hundreds and hundreds of publicly traded companies to sign on to this list, disclaiming that they're not going to engage in that practice. So That's just, great. I mean, I think, um, Steve, your question is, what are people doing right now? And the reality is we're very early with this. Yeah. This sort yeah. of focus yeah. on gender-based violence is a is a not a new problem, but a new topic in investing. Sure. Yeah, maybe just two quick pieces. One is, how do you look at a particular industry um, and say, who, what, how do we foster a race to the top? Who are the players that are in that, who are in that sector say agriculture, who are changing the way agriculture works to make it more equitable, more just, reducing exploitation within supply chains. And how do you look, it has to, getting more detailed at what's happening within an individual sector or saying, overall, we need more investments in the care economy. We need more move money moving in that direction and strengthening the care economy will reduce gender-based violence. Um, lots of ways that that's connected. So there's a good number of movements where people are really saying, how do I shift my capital to support different directions? So moving into a sectoral focus versus just a universal what's good or bad about companies versus what's happening in a sector is important. Yeah, you know, it, one thought of this too is like if we looked at the IT sector, and again, like we we do a lot inside of the field of gender-based violence and parallel it to the the trajectory of global climate change because it gives us a roadmap, right? And so inside of tech, 
we saw that there was a few operators that started to materially move and to green up their operations, right? And then when those first couple of them did it, whether they did it because they were pushed by their shareholders or they did it out of their own, you know, the goodness of their own hearts, either way, they gave us an idea. And that then shareholders could come in and start pushing everybody else in that field, right? There was one of them that was a race to the top. That's really what Joy is kind of identifying here. If we find certain companies that are operating certain ways, that are reflecting what we want to see from corporate culture in terms of gender-based violence and in terms of gender empowerment, how can we take that nugget, that, that, that very objective piece of data and use that in a shareholder engagement to, to fuel others within the same industry? Because there's that competitive drive and spirit that's gonna force them to start moving in, in alignment. Real quick, if we look at some of the industries that we highlight specifically in the values aligned section where there's the biggest degree of issue, that's probably the best place to, those are some of the best industries to start. No, I was just saying that it, within ride sharing, there was a moment a couple of years ago as, as a few companies were exposed for enabling rape to be tolerated. It created a little moment of a blip, but how do we keep that pressure? There wasn't in the end enough push to change. We weren't organized enough to say, who's exposed to violence within ride sharing and how can we shift the practices of the whole industry versus push on an individual company, but then let it go. We are getting a little shy on time. So I had kind of one final question for you guys. And that's, you know, it plays off what we've talked about so much today, which is that it's not a new topic, but it's a new, it's not a new problem. It's a new topic in investing. So to that end, uh, there are probably advisors out there who are hearing this or who have seen this in other places and say, I want to be involved. I have no clue where to start. I don't know how to bring this up to clients. I don't know where to go. So can we just give a few kind of first step tips, both for on the investment side of it and on the talking about this issue with clients? You know, I, this might seem somewhat flippant, but the first step, I would encourage people to read the paper. Um, it was really created to be inclusive and to, you know, broaden the field. This wasn't necessarily just something for Tiedemann or just something for Criterion. It was really to try to motivate mm -hmm. the field of investments and finance to look at this issue. And particularly like those who are capital holders, those who are investors, or those who are allocators, to really continue to foster this conversation within the finance community and the investment community, so that we can encourage those asset managers or the ones that are you know, on the ground making the, 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 the unique investment, how can they be thinking about this differently? How can we continue to build more tools around that? And we actually do, in the back of the paper, offer specific questions that you can address with asset managers and people in the field. We give resources of where they can find information to gather more data around the issues of gender-based violence and incorporate it into their strategies. Uh, we even give direct <laughs> roadmap to individual investors or holders of capital on how to get started. Um, so again, not to, not to overly promote the paper, but there's sure, a lot sure. in there. If you've put a lot of information there, why not get folks to go check it out? You know, it's, it's, it could be a great starting point. So, um, and, I think and that's, a, so my, my two cents on this mm -hmm. is that the feedback we often get about all of this is it's just overwhelming. And I, and I don't know where to start. Um, I think where what one is just, you have to start, 
or it's not going to get less overwhelming. And where I think people get the most resonance is to figure out, is there a place in my investment methodology where I think for me, this ha might have the most exposure? And then do the research, figure out what I love about investments. Great investors do great research. Don't expect that somebody else will have done that research for you. Where in your investment methodology does this align? That's what we did with Tiedemann, where they sort of said, here's how we approach this and, and then went deep. And so I think it's that, where do you see an intersection? And then go deep there. Maybe it's just on the connection to country level risk. And that's what you're going to be good at, or maybe whatever, but start mm -hmm. someplace that you think you can be good and then do the research that makes you exceptional. Don't let perfection be the barrier. We're not don't, don't yeah, also expect we, it all to be handed to you on a silver platter. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, something that, that we spoke about a lot at the beginning was that need for due diligence because it's not out there uh, clean cut and simple. We have to go find it and we have to dig for it and maybe even look for indicators of it rather than hard data on it. Um, this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Joy and Teresa, thank you both for joining me on the podcast. I hope that we shed a little light on this topic. It's like you said at the beginning, this is not easy to talk about. It is something that gets buried a lot. So let's let's dig it up. Let's bring it to light. For the audience out there, I hope you took something um, insightful out of this. And um, you can, as Joy said, just take that first step. Thank you so much for having us and for bringing this forward, Steve. Thanks to Joy Anderson of the Criterion Institute and Teresa Wells of Tiedemann Advisors. And thanks to my editor, Angelica Hester, for her dedicated work editing this and other content for us. Again, please be sure to join us on December 1st for our ESG Summit and Film Festival. You are more than welcome to attend one or both pieces of the event. Also, please tune in to our other podcast series, including The Investment News Podcast, Tech Stacks, and Her Success Matters. We also have a full library of weekly videos that we produce covering a range of topics from investing trends to practice management to social security updates with the one and only Mary Beth Franklin. Please follow Impact Adventures on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and leave a review. I want your feedback. I want to know what you like and what you think needs improving. If you know of an impact story that I need to tell, please send it my way. I'm on Instagram at thelamco, or you can tweet me at slimslam. My email is podcasts at investmentnews.com. Life is an adventure, folks, so you might as well make an impact.